You ever have that moment where you see something and you're trying to point out to make sure that everyone else can see what you see? We went to the zoo last weekend. It was a neighbor girl's birthday party. And, you know, every exhibit there was one of us. You know, we're just pointing out, hey, do you see that? Do you see that animal? What do you mean you don't see that? It's a lion right there. How do you not see it? You know, but we, this just goes on. And then the best, though, was the, the reptile house there. And if you've been to the zoo, you know, they got this big reptile house. There's all these aquariums and these glass tanks you're kind of looking into. And it's almost like a real live game of look and find. You know, you're just trying to, because they all just kind of blend in. And I'm almost convinced that in some of those aquariums, they've taken the animals out because we looked forever and I didn't see them in there. Just to mess with us a little bit, I don't know. But on one, one aquarium, we're looking all over and there's some kind of frog in there that we're trying to find and we're looking and we just can't seem to find it. And then finally, we notice it and it's just suctioned itself up to the upper corner of the tank only it's not just one frog, there's like a whole row of these frogs just all suctioned right up there on the glass. It just gave Steph the heebie-jeebies, you know, and she's just doing her shoulders and she's out of there. She's like, Steve, you can take the kids and go through and see the rest of this, but I'm out of here. And, but if you've ever been, you know, this reptile house, it goes on like, I don't know how they fit so much stuff in there, but it goes on for a ways. And so she goes and she's looking at everything or, or trying to make her beeline out of there. And then she runs back even more startled than she was before. And, and she's explaining to us that she goes by this one tank and it's where the bigger reptiles are. And there's this like huge iguana that is looking one way. And as she's walking, it just kind of, its head just turns. Like its neck does like a 180. Like it shouldn't work that way, but it does. And it just kind of turns. And then its beady eyes are just kind of staring at her and following her as she's walking. And so she just gets all weirded out. I mean, she felt like she was on the set of Jurassic Park or something. And she comes running back and she's like, we, got, we just got to get out of here. Like, there's enough of this, you know. And so we're walking out and then she points out the iguana that just like so got to her. And, you know, as lovingly as I possibly could, just a few steps later, I just come up right behind her, got close to her ear and just hissed a little bit, you know. <laughs> I've still got the bruise to prove it, so, yeah, you know, but we've all been there, haven't we, where we see something, and we've just got to point it out, hey, do you see this too, come on, look at this, you know, we, we see things, and we want other people to notice, you know, Paul could relate to that a lot. We'll see that this morning. We're continuing our series of the Unstoppable Church, as we've kind of made our way through the book of Acts this year, and we're, this morning we're going to look at Acts uh, 20 and 21, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts 20, 17 through 38. Acts 20, 17 through 38. And so we left Paul last week and there's this riot going on in Ephesus. Okay, it's crazy, it's too dangerous for Paul even to go into the theater, you remember, and they're kind of holding him back because Paul, he's the preacher, he's the evangelist, he wants to get in there and share the gospel, and they're saying, no, Paul, it's too dangerous, you can't do this. And remember, Paul arrived in Ephesus, and he only planned to stay there about three months. Those three months turned into a little over three years, and now it's finally safe and so as soon as it's safe, Paul, he just kind of hightails it out of there. He's, he gets out of Ephesus and he continues his missionary journey. 
and he's sailing, and he makes this, he's making a series of short stops. He goes to Macedonia, and then in Greece, and he sails back to Asia Minor. He stops in Troas, and, and the stop in Troas, it's a, it's a great story, especially for anyone who teaches, okay? So all these teachers, you know, and preachers, you know, we can relate to this because as Paul is preaching there, he just gets going, okay? He's preaching in Troas, and he's up on a third-story building, and he's just going and going, and he preaches so late into the night that it's past midnight. And remember, there's no electricity in those days, okay? The only thing that's going to be lighting that room is some candle, and he's just going and going and preaching, and there's this young guy, and, you know, he's probably trying as hard as he can to stay awake. And so he's sitting in the windowsill, just sitting there, and maybe the cool air is kind of blowing in and trying to help him stay awake, but it's past midnight and he just can't stay awake, okay? And so Paul, as he's preaching, the young guy, he falls asleep, falls out of the window, on the ground, dies. People leave the church service, run down, they grab the young guy, they carry him back up to Paul, and that's got to be kind of humbling, right? I mean, if you're preaching just killed somebody, that's a rough thing. And, but Paul, he, you know, by the power of the Spirit, he brings him back to life. And, and the stay in Troas is over, and then he sails on to Miletus. He gets to Miletus. Miletus is about 20 miles away from Ephesus. And so he never really had the opportunity to say a proper goodbye in Ephesus. There was the riot going on. As soon as the riot's over, Paul had to get out of there. And so now he's so close that he sends for the leaders of the church in Ephesus just so he can say a proper farewell, so he can say just a, a, a proper goodbye. But as he's doing this, he wants to point to them and say, look, do you see what I was doing? Do you see how, how I was leading? Because this is what a highly effective Christian looks like. And so th- that's kind of where we pick up the story in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. So it says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you 
not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which he is able to build up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he, he, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all because they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's a long farewell. You can feel the emotion of Paul as he just provides a little insight into uh, what makes such a highly effective Christian, what he was doing and his purposefulness there while he was in Ephesus. And he's, and he's saying to these leaders, he's saying, hey, you had a front row seat to all of it. You, you saw right up close what I was doing and how passionate I was with my ministry. You saw how I served the Lord, first of all, with humility and with tears. And he says that, you know, I serve the Lord with humility. You know, and today we look at it and we read, we say, hey, wait a second. Everyone knows that if you're humble, you really can't say that you're humble. Because if you say you're humble, that's really not humble. So can he really do that? Because that's not really humility. See, we've defined humility in such a way, but we've kind of confused the meaning of humility in our culture. The word humility there in the Greek, it's 15 letters long, so I'm not going to try to embarrass myself by pronouncing it for you this morning. But it's, it's a two-part word. And the first part means that you recognize your own weakness. That to be humble means to, I know that myself, I am weak. And then the second part of the word means to recognize the strength of God. So I recognize my own weakness, that I am unable to do anything of any kind of eternal value in and of myself. But at the same time, I recognize the strength and the power of God and that he can somehow take an unworthy vessel like me and through his strength and his power, he can do eternal things. And so this is humility. And so the person who goes around saying, oh, you know, I'm just, I could never do that. You know, I could never share Jesus with somebody. That, that's just not me. I, I could never teach somebody. I, I just don't have that in me. You know, I, I, I could never just go out and just kind of make friends and start conversations and just try to impact people. That's just not me. You see, that is just as prideful as the person who says, you know, without me, I don't, I don't even know how this ministry would survive. You know, I'm really bringing a lot to the table here. It's just two sides of the same coin. One is this false pride. This is, oh, I'm so lowly. But they miss the strength of God. And that's not humility. Because humility recognizes that through the power and the strength of God, he can do things through me that I never imagined. That's humility. But at the same time, it also recognizes that I don't bring anything to the table here. 
that this only works if it's all coming from God and it's not of my own strength. That he can use my talents, he can use my gifts, but it's still him who gets all the credit. I don't get any of it. That's what humility looks like, and it has this perspective that, hey, I'm weak, but he's strong. And then all of a sudden you step back and you can't even believe sometimes what God is able to do through you. I remember my friend Miles, and we were out in Montana, and Miles, he's, he knows there's this guy just at a park. We were doing a big barbecue in the park, and there's this, there's this guy, and he'd, he'd kind of been seeing him for the week, and, and God is just kind of putting this guy on Miles' heart. And I'd been encouraging him, just go, have the conversation, talk to him. And so finally Miles did, and he goes, he's, he's, he has the conversation with this, this young guy, and, and this young guy, he, get, he gives his life over to Jesus. And Miles comes back, and he's, he's like running, and he's got tears, and he's just so excited. And he's I can't believe that God could do that through me. Like, I can't believe that I had the conversation. I can't believe that he responded. I mean, he was just on cloud nine, but he recognized that, hey, in and of myself, that doesn't happen. That if it's just my strength, I'm going to shrink back because I don't, I don't really operate that way. But he, he recognized this, and that's humility. That's the power and the strength of God through someone who recognizes that by myself I'm weak. Paul said that he was doing all this with tears. Did you catch that? He mentions tears several times in this passage. If you ever are under any illusions that the mature Christian man or woman just moves stoically throughout life, that they just always think, well, you know, I know that God has this under control. That it's going to turn all, out all right in the end. I know we win. That, you know, I never get too high. I never get too low because Jesus is in control. If you think that, then you've got to read the scriptures. Because almost every great man and woman of faith, they spend considerable time weeping. Crying. I mean, Jesus, right? He, he weeps over the death of his friend. A friend who he knew he was just going to resurrect in just a little bit. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus spent much time praying with fervent cries and tears. And here we see Paul weeping. Paul, he's agonized over the unbelieving lost in the cities that he's visiting. These are unnamed, just men, women, crowds of people. He doesn't know them. He doesn't know their stories. He just knows how desperately they need to hear the good news of Jesus. And so he spends considerable time weeping. Weeping. When, when is the last time that it bothered you so much that throughout our community there's men and women who are headed towards destruction? That it bothered you so much that you were reduced to tears? Because th this is the pattern that we see in Scripture. You remember Nehemiah weeping over the state of his country. That they were in, he, he'd never even been to Jerusalem, and he's weeping over what's happening in Jerusalem. Because it bothers him that, this much. Paul, Paul wrote in Romans that he wished he could exchange his life with that of the Jews. These were the unbelieving Jews who were out to murder him. Okay, they wanted Paul dead. 
And Paul said, if I could, I would exchange my life for theirs. I would go to hell so that they could have an eternity with God. If I were able to do that, I would. You see, the world looks at, looks at something like that and they say, Paul, those people are your enemies. But Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing what's going on and seeing these people and having compassion for them and spending time weeping over them, he doesn't see them as enemies. Quite the contrary, Paul says, no, this is why I'm here. With, with great affliction and great anguish of heart, Paul said, no, they're not, they're not enemies. They're why I'm here. They're why God has left me here. See, sometimes people can do us wrong and we can get all bitter and all upset. Or we can look at something and we say, well, this isn't right. And we always want things to be right. We must ask ourselves, what do these people need most? And Paul's looking and he knows what these people need most is a relationship with Jesus. You know, they just don't know better. And so right now they feel threatened. They feel harmed. They feel like I'm attacking them. But the truth of the matter is Paul loved them. See, Paul being led by the Holy Spirit, he demonstrates these characteristics of a highly effective Christian. That a highly effective Christian has a stable perspective and a sensitive spirit. A stable perspective and a sensitive spirit. You see, Paul's perspective doesn't change. It doesn't matter what the Jews do to him. It doesn't matter what the Gentiles do to him. It doesn't, he says, hey, I'm going into every city, and the Holy Spirit testifies to me that as I go from city to city to city, that in every city, I can just expect to be imprisoned, and I can just expect danger. But this stable perspective that Paul has tells him, it doesn't change what I do. That I'm going there, I'm expecting this. I'm not looking for safety. I'm going there and I know that danger is a way, but I have this perspective that tells me I've got to share Jesus with people. This is why I'm here. They hate me, so what? They need to know who Jesus is. And that, that perspective and that spirit of care for those people, it produced this clarity of mission for Paul. Did, did you catch that? Did you hear, Paul? I never stopped proclaiming the truth to you. I mean, it, it was truth that would be painful for those people to hear because it would throw upside down the whole way they've lived. But it was also truth that was painful for Paul to proclaim because it threw upside down everything they believed. And so then they reacted accordingly. But it was painful to hear. It was painful to proclaim. But Paul said, I'm still preaching. I'm still sharing with you that you still need to know. And Paul doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull any punches. He still goes from city to city to city. And when there's a theater of an angry riot, Paul's trying to get in there and he wants to preach some more. He, he's not going to stop. And, and notice too, Paul says that I proclaimed the whole counsel of God's word to you. He, Paul's not trying to come up with the most clever way of saying something or he's not trying to persuade them by the eloquence of his teaching. Paul even talks against that. He says, hey, I'm not coming to you with the wisest of words here. I'm just coming to tell you the scriptures. I'm just coming to teach the Bible to you. 
Because this is where power comes from. This is the truth. My wisdom can be flawed. My eloquence, however great, however catchy, pales in comparison to the power of God's word. So this is what I teach to you. This is what my ministry is based on. And this is so core to Paul that he's willing to be attacked for it. That he's willing to go into places where he knows nothing but danger and pain await him. He's willing to be run out of town. He's willing to be arrested. He's willing to have his life threatened. And he never complains about it. Do you notice that about He never complains. He just keeps on going. Because he knew the power of the message he was proclaiming. He says, I've got to get this out. There's people who must know. So I must keep proclaiming the scriptures. You know, we can sometimes look for ways out. We don't always have that clarity of purpose, of mission. That You know, I know that the reason why God has me here is to share Jesus and impact people. And sometimes we can look for ways to kind of back out of it and we can come up with reasons. We get scared so we don't engage in the conversation or we just get busy. we got a lot of things going on. we got priorities. We're trying to get from here to there and just live. And sometimes we don't really think of ourselves living in a mission field. We just think, hey, this is home. Home doesn't need a mission. Home's not a mission field. Home is just home. It's where you live. It's interesting uh, a well-known leader, Mahatma Gandhi, Hindu leader, maybe you're familiar with him, he wrote a startling account in his autobiography. He said that while he was a student in England, that he was reading through the Gospels, and as he was reading through the Gospels as a student in England, he thought to himself, you know what, the Gospels, they provide an answer to this evil caste system in India, And he thought, you know, I I need to look into this further. And so one one Sunday morning, he gets up and he goes to a church service. And he intended to talk to a pastor there and just ask him a little bit more about Christianity, about salvation. um, Hoping to find a real solution to this caste system in India that he looked at as so terrible. And so as he goes in uh, and he enters into the building, one of the ushers there says to him, hey, why, why are you here? Like, you should be with your people worshiping over there. And so Gandhi left. And he never went to a church service again. In fact, he wrote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. You think this great Hindu leader, what could have happened if he was a great Christian leader in India? But sometimes we get comfortable. Notice Paul at a time when Jews and Gentiles hate each other, that he's going to both. That he recognizes that before the cross there's level ground. That that we're all equal in the sight of God. That There's no caste system. In God's arrangement, Gandhi understood the gospel's right. He just didn't see it lived out. And so it casted doubt on the gospel because people who should have known better didn't live better. The good news of the gospel is that the ground in front of the cross is level for all people, that before Jesus, that we are all just as dead. 
that we are all enemies of God before Jesus. But because of Jesus Christ and the reconciliation that he provides, that we are all adopted into one family. That you can have Jews and Gentiles. You can have people of all ethnicities. You can have people of all income levels. All united in God's family because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel and the world doesn't know anything about it. Because all the world does is want to pit groups against each other. Say, so here's this group, and here's this group, and, here, and we got all these different special interest groups. And God says, you're all my special interest group. That I love every last one of you so much that I give my life for you. And I want to adopt you into one family so that through your unity, you can proclaim something to the world that it doesn't know anything about. This is the power of the gospel. And it's spoken when it's rightly lived in a way that nothing else can ever speak to a lost and dying culture. But when we sit in services of segregation where one ethnicity has their church here and another ethnicity has their church here and another ethnicity has their church here, what happens is our voice is deafened to the culture. That they look and they, well, what's the difference there? You, you offer nothing different than any place else. Paul says, I went to Jews and Greeks. I went to the two groups of people who hated each other. And so that they could understand that through Jesus we're all one. That we're all one family. And that was hard for him to do. But you see, a highly effective Christian stands for truth. A highly effective Christian stands for truth. And Paul said, I am preaching the gospel, I'm preaching the Bible, I'm explaining the scriptures to you, nothing else, and I'm explaining it to all people, because all people are the same in the sight of God. This emotional farewell with the Ephesian church, it comes to an end. And you see just the, the hugging and the tears and the weeping and the, the sadness because Paul's told them, we're not going to see you guys again. This is the last that we're going to be together. And he's been with them for over three years now, and there's been a great movement in Ephesus. They've been through hard times together. He's helped train these guys now that they're able to lead the church. He's been through a lot. He's shown his example that, hey, my mission is so focused that this is why I'm here. I'm not trying to make money. I'm not trying to, you know, advance in society or anything like that. I'm just simply here to explain the scriptures, to share Jesus, to impact people. And then he lets them know, hey, I've, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where I'm headed. You can be praying as I'm going. This is where I'm headed. And so he sets sail. And in chapter 21, you see that as, as Paul is headed to Jerusalem, he's making several stops along the way. And his traveling companions, they're coming alongside Paul and they're pleading with Paul. Because they know what awaits in Jerusalem. And they're saying, Paul, you can't go. You, you can't go to Jerusalem, Paul. There, there's going to be this angry mob there. They're, they're going to go and get you. They're going to arrest you, Paul. They're going to hand you over to the Gentiles just the way they did with Jesus. They're going to do the same thing to you. Paul, you can't go. They want to persecute you. They want to end your ministry. You can't go to Jerusalem. But these are faithful men. 
Okay, these are faithful leaders who, it's not like these are just noises in the crowd. These are wise, trusted counselors. And this is the message that they're sending to Paul, that they're giving Paul. They're, they're, they're coming up with every argument that they can think of to say, Paul, just don't go. And Paul, he, ma- he makes this great line in Acts 21. He responds to them and he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? This is your passionate pleas that I feel them. Like they, they impact me. It's breaking my heart that this, this bothers you so much. But you need to know I'm ready to not only be bound and arrested in Jerusalem, but I'm ready to give my life in Jerusalem for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have read chapter 21 in Acts, and they've made the argument that Paul was wrong to go to Jerusalem. That he's got all these faithful counselors here, good brothers in the Lord, who come to him and and say, Paul, don't go. In fact, in one point, it even says that they're making this argument by the Spirit, and they're saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And so, because of that, they say, well, then Paul must have been wrong to go. He, he should have listened to the faithful counsel of his friends. I mean, Proverbs talks about the value of gathering faithful counselors and, and not just trying to be this lone ranger. But you have to remember what we read in Acts 20. It says that Paul was compelled, constrained by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. See, Paul was in greater obedience to God than they ever knew because Paul knew how God was leading him. See, sometimes faithful people, people who love the Lord and they can know a situation and they can still not give the best advice. And they might all be saying the same thing. See, Paul, Paul's in a situation here. He's got faithful people People who love God, who are led by God, and they're all telling Paul, don't go. But it's not the best advice because Paul knows, I've got to go. Now, they're right to tell him and to warn him, hey, danger awaits, affliction awaits, all that. But Paul was still right to go because the Holy Spirit had already told him, you can go. See, sometimes God calls us to hard things. Sometimes God calls us to dangerous things. Things that other people would look at and say, you know, it'd just be a lot safer if. And maybe you shouldn't go. But Paul, led by the Spirit, he says, I'm going. And this kind of brings up something else, you know. Sometimes we can make the statement, God told me. You know, God just told me I've got to go. And sometimes what we mean by God told me is not really God told me. Sometimes what we mean is I've made up my mind. You know, I've just made up my mind. And, you know, it's going to be a whole lot harder for you to argue with God than it is to me. So if I just kind of throw God's name out there, boom, that kind of ends the argument. And we can do it the other way too. Well, God told me that you need to do this. Really, it's just I just feel like, you know, I just feel like it'd be better if you didn't. We have to be very careful with the way that we throw God's name around. You know, 
Paul, he says that I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ there. I cherish God's name so much that I'm not just going to throw his name around loosely. I'm not just going to be casual with it, but I'm going to be purposeful with it. See, Paul knew what he had to do and he knew what was coming up next. And so when he says that I'm constrained by the spirit that I have to get there, boom, he's going. But you can take it to the bank when he says it because of the way he's treated the name of God. See, highly effective Christians are led by the spirit above all else. Highly effective Christians follow the spirit above all else, above the advice of even faithful friends sometimes. Not that we don't want the advice of faithful friends. We absolutely do. That's where wisdom comes from. But sometimes their advice isn't always the best. When we're convinced it's not and that God is leading us through something else, through his word, we need to follow that. We follow the spirit above our feelings. We follow the lead of the spirit above what's safe. We follow the lead of the spirit above what's easy. This is what we do. This is what a faithful, highly effective Christian does. And, you know, Paul, you look back and you study his life, and he's one of the most effective people ever to live. And it's almost like he's coming alongside first those Ephesian elders, and he's just pointing to them, and he's saying, did you see how I was leading? Did you see the purpose with which I led my life? Did you see how I was willing to sacrifice everything else so that I could share the message? Did you see how sensitive I was to the Spirit? Did you see how much I cared for the people? Did you, did you see this? And he's just pointing to them and he's helping them. Did you see? Did you see? Did you see? And now as he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's got his traveling companions with him and he's sailing and he's, he's saying, don't you see how I've always followed the Spirit? Don't you see when we, we just wanted to stop in Asia Minor that we kept going to Europe because we knew we had to get there? Don't, don't you see how we've always gone and even in hard places that we go, don't you see? In life, it's nice when there's someone a little bit further down the road than you, right? Who can just come alongside you, put their arm around you and say, hey, don't you see? That if you keep making these decisions, if you keep making these choices, this is where this is going to end. Don't you see that this is what it looks like to lead a godly family? Don't you see that this is what it looks like to be a godly grandparent? Don't you see that this is helpful in order to share Jesus? That we want relationships like that and people like that. And sometimes you're the one who's a little further down the road. And you've got this a little more stable perspective than someone else in your life. And you're the one then who's called to be that disciple maker, the one who's called to come alongside and to help other people see and to point things out and say, oh, you know what you really need? I know you say you love Jesus, but what you really need to do is you really need to come and be a part of God's family. Because there's no Lone Ranger Christians out there. That God has created us with the need for family. That he's adopted us into this. Or come alongside someone and say, hey, I've been reading the scriptures lately and I've noticed some things and can I show you? Can I, can I just show you what I've seen? And we help them grow and get into the scriptures for themselves. And hey, how, how have you been praying? 
You know, I used to struggle with prayer, but here's what I do, and just help them see, hey, here's how you can pray. Here's how you can be reminded to pray. Here's the things we ought to pray for. And then sometimes you can, you can come alongside and someone and say, hey, there's the community out there. Come. You can impact. You may not think you can, but God's strength through you, you can make a difference. Come on, let, let me show you what God can accomplish through you. You can do it. And come alongside me and let, let me show you, you can impact people. You can be a disciple maker who goes and makes other disciples. See, this is Paul's life. He's just coming alongside people and he's helping them get to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage of discipleship. Just going through the four chairs of discipleship and just getting them out there. And then they're making an impact in ways that I imagine that if you would have told them before, they would have never imagined. You remember John Mark, how Barnabas never gave up and he goes and, 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 and if you would have asked him later, I'm sure he would have said, I never could have imagined doing that. But Barnabas stuck with him and moved him through the chairs. Look at Aquila and Priscilla and this older couple, and they just leave their home. And then they get on a missionary boat, and they travel, and they end up in Ephesus, and then the impact they have on Apollo and Apollos. And if you would have asked them, I'm sure they would have said, ah, there's no way. We're old now. We can't be, we can't be doing that. How are we going to live behind our home and just go off and do something new? You do things that you never imagined before that you could because you recognize your weakness, and then you recognize God's strength. See, a highly effective Christian has a stable perspective, a sensitive spirit, stands for the truth, and follows the leadership of the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. God, give us that true perspective that helps us to understand how weak we are, but at the same time how strong you are, that you can do eternal things through weak people like us. And so God, this week, give us that just clarity of focus the way Paul had. Help us to be highly effective as we engage our community, sharing Jesus and impacting people. We ask this through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.